No, you're good. Uh, good morning. I always struggle with an introduction here uh, because I've preached here a few times. I've been a part of Grace Chapel for five and a half years as um, I work on staff at Back to Back Ministries and as a director of a ministry there. Um, and some of you have known me that entire five and a half years. Others of you we've met recently. But part of the beauty of the church is that they're continually having new people invited into it. And so this may be the first opportunity that we've had to meet each other. Um, I can't really get to know you, but you're going to listen to me for the next few minutes. And since you're going to do that, I want you to know a little bit about me so that it creates a, a little bit of a partnership as to why we would be able to have this dialogue, that that's what I hope it becomes out of a church sermon. Believe that this should be the catalyst for conversation every Sunday morning. That when we're coming into a place, it's not to hear the word of the Lord and just go do it. It's to hear the word of the Lord and to partner with it and to let it kind of become us. And a lot of times on a Sunday morning, we'll hear things that we need to talk about and process. And so I want to introduce myself and, and create that open invitation that if there's discussion that can be had and dialogue for the kingdom of God to get better, to be good at who we are, I love having that. I love partnering with that. Um, I have blogs about that if you're into the blogging world where you can comment anonymously if you need to. Or we can have conversation or you can talk to Jeff. This is a church of conversation and community. But Jeff asked me to share a few weeks ago. He came to me and asked me if I would share in this From Great to Good series. And so I thought I would start by sharing you some of the, the good things in my life. And number one... The best thing in my life is that Jesus is my Savior and that every morning I wake up and He overwhelms me with His mercy. And He invites me into His story and He gives me a voice and He lets me play with His toys. And I'm overwhelmed by it. I'm in awe of it. I don't deserve it. And yet I still get the opportunity each day and I wake up with the opportunity to claim His mercy. And so I'm imperfectly pursuing a perfect God every day in my life. And that's the number one. That's the best thing about me. The second best thing about me is that I'm Sarah's husband. For almost 12 years, I've been proud to write down next to my name that I am the husband of Sarah Cox because she blows my mind. She is the most amazing woman that I could have possibly ever met. And as soon as I met her, I realized that and made her my wife. And it took a lot of drugs. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, I not only got to become her husband, but then a few years into our marriage, we were blessed to become the parents of Sonny and then later Brinkley. And so the third best thing in my life are that I'm, I'm Sonny and Brinkley's dad. And uh, if you're a parent in element of an elementary age kid, in this, that's, that's how your children know me. I teach children's church every other week. And so for the first through fifth graders here, I'm Sonny's dad. Um, and so some of them come in and call me Sonny's dad. And uh, I'm the funny teacher in children's church, by the way. That, I also like that I get to be that. Um, and so I'm Sonny and Brinkley's dad, Sonny's seven, Brinkley's three. And then the, the last thing that I'll share with you that, that is really good about my life is that I have, and you can stop searching, I have the best job in the world. I'm sorry it's taken. You can't have it. It's mine. I get to invest in emerging generations with the gospel of Jesus. The, the messy place. The place of confusion and hormones and let me date everyone under the sun and let me listen to Justin Bieber world. 
That, that's, that's where I live. Not with Justin Bieber, but in that world. I get to hang out with high schoolers and junior high students and elementary age kids. And what I get to do for a living is to help engage in their conversation of thought. Help articulate what the, the emerging concepts are coming from the generations that are about to be part of our adult culture. And help train, teach, empower, enable, and coach and encourage them to be able to claim their faith through their voice in a way that will be heard around the world. Don't you wish you would have had that? Like, I wish growing up that I would have had something specific that was just dialed in saying, your generation matters. You're a train wreck right now, but your generation matters so much that we're going to pave the way for your generation to have its voice and you're not going to have to speak out of rebellion of the generations that have gone before you. Because if you study us as a country, historically, we've often found our voice in rebellion against what mom and dad said. What came before us. The way we used to do it. And we say, well, I'm going to do it this way. My goal in life is to pave a way to say, how about we live this thing together? Multiple generations pursuing the same Jesus with the same goal in mind. Each one of us adding our perspective and our voice to how we are motivated so that the church can work in unison generationally forever and ever. Amen? Like, that's, that's me. So that's what I'm excited. You can tell a little bit, a little bit excited about that. All of those things compose who I am and what I believe we need to talk about this morning. But before we get there, I need to just do one little rabbit trail off of what I just said about emerging generations. If you're a parent in this room or a grandparent in this room, I need to ask for your help. As you are preparing your back to school schedule, I'm sure it's chaos. As you are looking for what is going to be a priority in your house, I'm sure there are a lot of options that are overwhelming. On behalf of a generation that can't yet speak for themselves, I'm going to ask you to deeply consider carving out protected Sabbath rest space for your students to be part of the community at Grace Chapel. In the past year, David Mead has proven himself to be one of the most God-honoring, selfless, humble, relational leaders that your church could have ever been blessed with. I've been honored to partner with him. I don't get paid to say this, by the way. And there are a lot of guys that I would not say this about. I've been honored to partner with him. I was in partnership with Brian before he left and loved and respected that man. And David Mead fits the bill of what Grace Chapel needed and what he wants to see as a kingdom here for your youth culture is unstoppable because they get to own it. They get to lead it. They will be championed in it. The mentors and adults that are being drawn in are being trained. Your kids will be as protected as they need to be as high schoolers. Sometimes they need to just be thrown off of buildings and stuff because it's fun. Um, they will be able to have fun. They will be able to experience. And I know it is an individual choice for every high school student. I believe that you can't you force a kid into a high school student ministry. They're never going back. I'm just asking that your schedule and your values as a family are not what keep your kids from being able to be invested in, in the community of Grace Chapel this year. And once a month doesn't do. You know that in your own life. Could you imagine showing up to your marriage once a month and expecting it to be healthy? It doesn't work. 
it leads to affairs. And it's the same way in a youth culture. That if your students don't have the freedom to choose to be part of the community on a regular basis, to spend time as the bride of Christ together, they're going to go sleep with the world. Because that's what we're, being told, we're telling them is of value. So, quick side note for me, because it's of passion. And I believe that you have, you have a gold mine here in your student ministry. And no one loves the next generation more than Jeff Greer. And no one's more willing to throw resources at it than he. So you have a church that's a training ground. I know the schedule gets crazy right now. And I'm just asking you just to lift your eyes a little bit and saying, oh, wait a minute. With all the stuff that we need to do this fall to get you into the college that you need to get to, to make sure that you can pay for your cell phone and take care of your car and get the good grades, have we valued your biblical community? Just asking that question as a family, and if there's a way from 121 or Grace Chapel, we can help you with that if it's outside normal youth group time. Student ministry for high school, Sunday nights. Junior high is Wednesday night and Sunday morning. You have options there for midweek stuff for high schoolers, too. I value it that much that I think it's great to preach on for a minute. Speaking of emerging generations, though, we have a conundrum. It's emerging. And I use the word emerging not to give a definition of a perspective on religion, but voices that are coming up. They're being added to the voices that are already there. Here's the conundrum that we have. We have generations who would believe that the religion of Christianity is America. That it says it on our money, it's in our constitution, we fought wars to protect it, and we love that we are an American Christian nation, and that we have the greatest religion in the world, and we need to protect it with the way we vote, we need to protect it around the water cooler, we need to pick fights at Chick-fil-A about it, this is us. And we have that, we do have those generations that are, that are present. And then we have a generation that is represented best said by a YouTube video that came out in 2012. This man, his name is Jefferson Bethke. He's a gifted, talented, amazing spoken word artist. The way in which he can bring word plays together, make you think, that's how I felt, I just never knew how to say it. I don't know if you've ever been in a message like that or you've heard a song like that that you've thought... He, he said exactly how I feel, I just can't say it that well. Jefferson can speak that in the way that he does his spoken word. But in 2012, in his dorm room, he comes out with a spoken word in an effort to have a conversation with some people about Jesus on a campus in which he is wrestling with his identity in Jesus and how he's going to lead, called, Why I Love Jesus But I Hate the Church. But I hate religion, sorry, but I hate religion, it was his, his title. In 48 hours, over 7 million views. In the last 12 months, 23 million views. Why I love Jesus, but I hate religion. You see the conundrum? We have an emerging generation saying, I hate religion. And we have generations that say, America is religion. Where are we going to meet? In a fight. And a fight doesn't sound like very good news to me. I don't want to get to that place. I'm not of the the make or the perspective that says that the kingdom of God fighting amongst itself is ever beneficial for the kingdom of God. 
that the lack of unity amongst the kingdom of God illustrates to the world, we don't have any better answers than you do. We just have an opinion. And we have a religion. And we believe our religion is great. And we believe that we've got some good news inside of this religion. But you have to agree with the religion before you can get the good news. And as part of this series that Jeff has been pushing us toward, I believe that it doesn't take us abandoning religion because I believe that that is a great tool of Satan. That if he could get emerging generations and thought from us to say, you're right, religion bad, Jesus good. That if we went there, it would crack the infrastructure of Christianity so deeply because it would cause us to believe a lie. We can't help but have religion. Religion is simply a system of beliefs about the universe. Atheists are religious. They just don't have a God and they defend him very well. His just name is just no God. And that's their God and they worship him. Ask one of them, they'll tell you. They are religious. Christians, we are religious. We we put titles on our churches based on our belief system of the universe. And we either agree or we disagree. We can have the Baptist. We can have a Pentecostal. We can have a Church of Christ. We can have a non-instrumental Church of Christ. We can break it down into any belief system that we want. But we have religion. We have a belief system. And I would say that we cannot follow Jesus without religion. It will become impossible if we do not have boundaries, if we don't have these guardrails around us that tell us what it is that this God who we believe in believes about himself and about his creation and about his cosmos, we're in trouble because we can then believe anything. We'll sound like every talk show host that's on TV that is very spiritual. We'll sound like the artist Macklemore. I don't know if you're familiar with Macklemore. He shops at thrift shops. You may have heard that song over and over. He's popping tags at New to You. And if you know the song, you know that part. He came out with this song in his thrift shop and everybody's just going, Oh, this is so cool. It's so fun. We can just listen to it. And we just, it has no purpose. Macklemore is one of the most politically driven rap artists that you will have ever met, which is actually a, fresh, a breath of fresh air for the rap community. He's not always rapping about stupidity. He has a purpose behind his rap, and his most recent work is called Same Love. And in this work, he presents the theory that people can't change. Even if they want to, they can't change. They are made that way. They are the same. It's the same love. Globally, it is the same love. You can put the name of any God on it, any religion on it. All love is the same, and I can't change even if I wanted to. It's the same love, and that same love is what keeps us warm as a culture. He misquotes biblical history. He uses scripture in the song of saying, Love is patient, love is kind, love is patient, love is kind. That's the hook at the end. So love is patient, love is kind, love cannot change me, it is the same, I cannot be changed no matter what, I am always going to be the same. And so great religion, global religion should be that we accept each other and ourselves as we are completely globally and we love each other in spite of who we are. Therefore, love is in opposition of religion and a lot of people really like his message. It sounds really good. Oh yeah, 
What if it wasn't a system of beliefs I get to live, but I just love? And what if all love was the same? And what if we could just name it and claim it? Everything. Allah, Buddha, Hindu, spiritualism, Ellen, Oprah, A-Rod, not A-Rod. Um, <laughs> what if I could just claim that all, as long as we love, it all stays the same? Well, that sounds like really bad news to me. I hope I don't say the same. I hope there's one love that can change me. I'm banking on it. I wake up every morning hoping that the love of Jesus can transform me into someone that I struggle to be every day. I hope that the good news of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus was a love that is promised to transform me, not simply give me a belief system that says I can't change even if I wanted to. So you have Jefferson from the voice of Christianity, you have Macklemore from the voice of the world, both saying the same thing. Your religious belief system is wrong and we hate it. But we really like love and we like Jesus. We have a problem. In America, and this is all I can speak to because globally, when I've been global on the mission trips that I take with Back to Back, it's different. There's a different response. It's more missional. It's more New Testament church where the gospel is being presented for the first time and religious presupposition is, is, doesn't exist from an American Christianity perspective. They don't have in God we trust on their money and they don't have in God we trust on, our, on, their, on their documents. They have who do you say this God is. It's different globally. But in America we have this thing where we have created unintentionally on most part out of a longing for the good news. We've created a country that's trying to defend a great religion instead of claiming a good news and inviting people into a religion that's subservient to that good news. I don't think we need to do away with religion. I think as the church, we had, had better figure out where religion's place is in the story of God so that we can utilize our belief system as a methodology to pursue sanctification with Jesus, but so that we can utilize good news to free people from bondage that they don't even know that they're bound to. We need to make the news good again. We're beyond the place where when we pick up a conversation about culture and cultural decisions, that Christian equals Republican and people feel judged by it. We have to move beyond that. There are Christian Republicans. Don't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with anyone's politics. You can have them. I don't care. What I do care about is that the good news trumps any religious perspective that you have. Because I believe that unless we make the good news great, great religion is going to die. People ask questions all the time. When do you think Christianity is going to be persecuted in this country? What do you mean? We already hate each other. We're persecuted on the daily inside of our own churches, inside of our own communities. The majority of us in this room probably have a bad experience religiously from when we were growing up that we've had to overcome, find healing from, or kind of find some kind of redemption or reconciliation. There's already stuff happening inside. But what if we line these things up in the right way? Now, you should absolutely throw out everything that I just said if I cannot back it up biblically. That's just my belief system. 
But I believe that there is a foundation in Scripture that goes through both covenants that God has given us, that articulates what we're saying. I believe that the Old Covenant, Genesis through Malachi, is to give us a a purpose, an invitation to foreshadow the need for a Messiah. That all of, all of the old covenant story is not to say, here's one people, protect them for the rest of, of our lives, and I'm going to call them Israel and they're just my people. I don't believe that. I believe that the Old Testament is to say, here is a way I'm going to show you through people that without a Savior that is God, it never will work. No religion will function without a Savior who, in spite of your works, overwhelmingly redeems you. And that that's why in the Old Testament, 610 laws weren't enough to keep Israel holy. It's why that a king directly in connection to God through prophets didn't keep Israel holy. It's why the moment that they became a nation in the promised land, inside there's 12 tribes, they split. Because work-driven religion doesn't work. And the Old Testament is giving us illustration in that continually. And the New Testament, then we we partner it by saying the first part of it, the Gospels, are the good news of Jesus and they tell us his story. And the rest of it is how the church should operate. I would contend, though, that the first four books of the New Testament are the story of Jesus Messiah on earth, giving us illustration to the religion of Christianity. That he is speaking, the kingdom of God is drawn near to you. And this is what is a priority in the kingdom of God. That the rest of the New Testament is the beginnings of the church trying to establish community based on that kingdom teaching in the gospel and we have the new seedling church being birthed. But often we compare the American church of 2013 to the Acts chapter 2 or the Acts 17 church when we really need to compare it to the nation of Israel. Because we're not a, aha, Jesus is real culture. We're a, we believe we've already gotten God. We believe that God is with us. We believe we are God's chosen people. So now what do we do? And that sounds a lot like Israel. That sounds like a lot, like an Old Testament perspective. We've received the Savior, we have the Messiah, so now what? And Israel was living in that. We have God with us, we have Yahweh, we have this Emmanuel with us. He's coming as a Messiah, but He's leading us. So now what do we do? If you have a Bible, Second Chronicles chapter 30, I believe that the King Hezekiah tries to figure out with us what we do when we have God. There will be a couple of verses that will be on the screen for you. This will be the part that I read and that we share together. But I want to set up a little bit about King Hezekiah for a minute before I read a very pivotal Old Testament passage that I think probably gets skipped over. Because Hezekiah is not one of our most talked about kings. If you're interested in a backstory on him, you can read 2 Kings chapter 17 and 18 and you'll get some interesting perspective on Hezekiah. And then in 2 Chronicles 30 and 31, you'll get his story of king. He's a grandson to Solomon. Great-grandpa's David. It's pretty pretty good lineage there. You have David, the man after God's own heart, and Solomon, the wisest man to ever live in your family tree. Doing all right. 
His dad was a cultural connectivity icon, and he decided that, yes, I know Yahweh God, but also there are these world religions living around us. We should make everybody kind of feel safe in Jerusalem. Judah is separated from Israel. We have two different groups living underneath the umbrella of the nation of Israel with two kings. He's the king of Judah, and he's going, hey, we've got these Assyrians and these different people around us. We should make them feel welcome here. Let's put a totem pole to their God next to our God so that we can live in peace. And so he builds these things called Asherah poles. More than likely, Asherah poles on the top had the head of a serpent. You see the irony in that? If you're a follower of Jesus, the head of a snake is sitting outside the temple of God. If you walked into the temple, they put one right in front of the Holy of Holies. In order to get to God, you need to go through Satan. Interesting. It's a very interesting perspective to say, I'm going to bring in the icon, cultural icon of the world. And it just happens to be a serpent of which we know in the creation story, God has a little bit of a confrontation with. And he says, at some point, I'm going to crush your head. Saying, like, here, I'll show you how much you're going to crush me. I'm going to put myself right in front of your holiness. Because the church is going to want to be culturally relevant. And they're going to wonder why they can't be holy because I'm standing in front of them. Really interesting. Hezekiah grows up with Asherah poles around and when he becomes king at the ripe old age of 15, can you imagine your 15-year-old leading an entire kingdom? Yeah, interesting, right? <laughs> what are we going to do? Play the Wii. Um, <laughs> give me the keys, Dad. And so 15-year-old Hezekiah becomes king and his servants come to him and say, what do you want us to do? He says, I want you to rip the idols down. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, you read that he has all these serpent's head poles like pulled down and ripped out of Jerusalem. And not only that, and this is the more interesting one, is that he actually takes a staff and it's in the, the form of a serpent. It's this bronze staff that Moses had to use in Numbers chapter 21 um, that he had to use in order to help heal people because they were yelling at God and God was trying to get their attention. Uh, Moses had this rod that was in the shape of a serpent and people were starting to worship the head of the Asherah pole and the staff of Moses. And Hezekiah goes into the temple and he's like, hey, that's Moses' staff. People are worshiping it. Crack! Breaks it over his knee and throws it in a fire. Pulls a Bo Jackson on it. Gets rid of the thing and everyone's like, what did you do? And he's like, no, we worship one God here. This is our religion. We worship God. You will have no other gods before me. He's taken a commandment and he's making it real. And he's saying, this is who we are. We are the people of God. We are religious. So get the stuff out of here. You're worshiping a staff instead of worshiping God. All that stuff's gone. Hey, priests, go cleanse yourselves. Hey, Levites, go cleanse yourselves. We are going to have the temple reopened for business. And in the Old Testament, in order to be forgiven, you had to bring your sacrifice to a temple priest who had been cleansed, who was holy, so that he could take it into the temple and offer it to God on your behalf. Because everyone's guilty of sin. Everyone's guilty of breaking the law. And something had to pay the price. And so in the Old Testament, God is saying, something always has to pay the price. Every time you make a mistake, we will let a lamb pay the price. And the lamb's blood will represent that something died for your sin. It's gross. It's disgusting. So is our sin. There's a great illustration when you're walking up with a pool of blood saying, my junk looks this bad. 
And these priests were only allowed to touch it if they had gone through this ceremonial cleansing. So Hezekiah says, you guys go get clean. You guys go get clean. You're going to reenact our religion. Our belief system is that you have to be in the temple. Only you touch the blood. The blood goes in. These people need to be freed because we're all living outside of our God. And we need to start this thing over. All right. What else have we forgotten? Oh, yes. We forgot Passover. Remember that very important thing where in Egypt we were all slaves and then God let us out. And from that point on, on the 14th day of the first month, we all stopped everything and threw a seven day party saying, God, this is the day that you passed over us and all of the oldest sons in Egypt died so that we could live, so that we would be free. Oh, remember that? We should probably remember that. It's kind of important. And Hezekiah is like, it's so important that we're going to start that. You guys get ready. We're going to clean the temple. You're going to go in. We're going to have church, people. And he sends out an invitation to everyone in both sides of the fence in the nation. Israel and all your tribes, you get it. Judah, you get the invitation. And it says in Second Chronicles 30 that Judah was ready to respond. They were ready for revival. They're going, yeah, take us to church, man. Take us to church, man. But Israel, they're wondering if this is just a ploy. You know, we come in. They attack us. We become their slaves. And so that Judah has both Israel and Judah now. And they're wary, but it says that some were seeking the heart of God. And they started the journey already. So Hezekiah sends an invitation out and says, come, we're going to have Passover together. Bring your sacrifices. Come to Jerusalem. The temple's going to be ready. It's going to be open for business. So all these people start bringing. They know I should bring my goat. I should bring my lamb. And I should show up. And they're so excited to get into this place and to get back in the good graces of God that it, it illustrates and it says that the Levites and the priests became ashamed because all the people are showing up and they're cutting their own lamb's throats, bringing blood to the front of the temple, and it's all unclean. Ceremonially, they have done nothing religiously. They just got there. They just ran up to the doors of the church and said, I'm here and I'm ready to be forgiven. You're going to forgive me? And the priests are like, oh, no, we're all going to die. That is the most unholy blood I've ever seen in my life. What do we do? And the priest, someone made a decision They're like, hey, Levites, you're going to handle the blood. We know ceremonially it says you don't handle the blood. We handle the blood. You just handle the lambs. But there's not enough of us and we've got to get this blood cleaned up. So um, you, I'm gonna hand, we're going to handle it. You're going to handle it. We're going to give you a job that religiously is not yours. We are now breaking Old Testament law right here. Priests are doing it. We're going to break it. You guys do that. Go get the blood from the people and we're going to go in there. And even at that point, they're like, all right, so it's supposed to be the 14th day of the first month. And they're looking around at all the people that are looking at the temple. And they're like, Hezekiah, we're not going to make it. What do you mean we're not going to make it? Uh, yeah, this temple is not clean enough for us to do any type of sacrificing inside of it. And he's like, all right, let's go 14th day of the second month. We just completely broke all Old Testament law. We took the Passover and moved it a month. We might as well not have it for a year. 14th day, first month. This is the way we've always done it. It's Christmas, December 25th. Come on. That is when Jesus was born. Right? It's like this religious date that we go, you have to have it. And in the Old Testament, they would have, had that, they would have been like, <gasps> maybe you have that family member that if you celebrate Christmas on New Year's Day because you're just in town, they're like, <gasps> we can't do that, little baby Jesus. This is what they would have been doing in the Old Testament. They would be like, what are we doing? The wrath of God is coming down on us. It's guaranteed. Here he comes. Priests and Levites are ashamed. They're like, do I want to be a part of this? Because this is going down bad. And you have... Unclean, messy people standing outside a temple that's not ready in time. 
And Hezekiah says, no, we're going 14th of the second moment. We're not of the second month. We're not waiting another year. I refuse to tell God for another year not to forgive us. I refuse not to claim that Jesus, that God, Yahweh, is our Savior. We're going 14th day, second month. But I recognize that no one in this room meets the criteria of my religion. And so it says Hezekiah had prayed for them saying, may the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God. The Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanliness. Hezekiah got it. He got that good news trumps great religion all the time, and that he put his life and work into the religion of the God that he believed in. If he doesn't have religion, he doesn't rip down a shearer poles. If he doesn't have religion, there's no, re- there's no need to break down Moses' staff. He knows what righteousness looks like. And while he is seeking to bring his people to become righteous, he also knows what uncleanliness looks like. And he has made the decision. My people will not stay away from God because our religion isn't good enough. They'll stay apart from God because God chooses not to side with grace and instead sides with justice. So I'm leaning into his grace. I will lean into his mercy to trump his justice. And it says then that God heard Hezekiah and healed the people. That's good news. Can you imagine standing outside that temple? Priests are running around going, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is a mess, we're all going to die. What do you mean we're going to die? You're not clean, that's not clean, I'm now not clean as a priest. Like we, Our ceremonial stuff has been shot and our king is making us go through with this. Get ready because it's over. Like everything, everything I've ever been told, taught, and has been prophesied is that when you anger the Lord and you do not follow his law and his ways, it's going to be bad. And Hezekiah walks out and says, hey, you're my people. I prayed for you. I prayed that God would heal you in spite of the fact that I know it's the wrong month. And it's not clean enough and you didn't ceremonially clean yourself before you got here and you're not very religious. But you walked all this way. Because inside of you, you know that you want God to save you. So I begged him on your behalf that he would pardon you in spite of what you did yesterday. In spite of how you got here. In spite of everything that you are. That's good news. That's the kind of news that changes things. I was at this camp that we run called 121 Summer Experience last month. And we had a, one of the most interesting weeks I've ever been a part of. Religion and good news smacked right into each other through the form of two girls who we didn't know were coming and we didn't know what to expect from them. They had been assigned to a foster home a couple of weeks before they got to camp. 
their foster mom knew about 121. We had partnered with some of the kids that she had housed before, and so she signed them up for church camp. Best thing you could do for a kid who just got kicked out of her house for punching her mom is get her to Jesus, right? <laughs> Best thing you could do for a thief who <laughs> has an active court case going on right now, let's send him to church camp. Jesus will fix it all. Right. So they show up. We don't know that they're there. We don't know their backstory. We don't know what happened. There was no like conscious decision to say, hey, you know what? He might enjoy knowing this. The director of the camp. Um, he might enjoy knowing that we've sent two people who are in active investigations right now. That's something I'd like to know. Something I would have liked to tell the girls in our dorm when they were throwing all of their iPods and iPhones and hundreds of dollars just on their bunk. Because they're like, I'm a church camp. It's safe. You know? And these two girls are coming in going, nobody takes care of me but me. And there's a whole lot of stuff here that can take care of me. And by Thursday night, they've walked through one girl's dorm at different times during the week with quite the grand scheme. It was impressive how they were able to take $450, two iPhones and an iPod from one girl's dorm. And at that point, we knew we had a decision to make. The decision was completely on my shoulders to make. The director of the camp had come to me and said, I hear that there's a bunch of money missing. I'm like, yeah, there's a bunch of money missing. And there's a couple of iPhones and an iPod, but I know who did it. He's like, how do you know? I'm like, well, during group game, these two girls came walking out of girls' dorm and gave me the excuse that they overslept. So we know, we know who it was. We know where that they have it hidden He's like, so uh, do you want me to call the police or are you going to? No. Is that an option? <laughs> the answer is no. What do you mean no? This is, our, this is our rule. This is camp rule. We have to send them home. You can't steal. You can't take all this. But what about the girls in that dorm who got their stuff stolen from them? You're right. They, they deserve some reconciliation. We'll get there. But what we should... The two girls who said, I can't take care of myself, I'm so desperate I would rob from other kids at church camp, the best thing that we should do is kick them out and put them back into the system? Come on. He's like, well, if you have a better way, I'm like, I got Jesus' way, prove to you. (laughs) I get a little attitude in crisis like that. And so I walk away, and I walk up to two other leaders, and I'm like, all right, so our objective is to keep these girls here, to get these other girls their stuff back, and to somehow keep this thing from blowing up all over the camp. How do we do that? And one of the leaders asked a great question. He's like, what do we have that these two girls can't live without? Because that's the only way we're getting that money back. Because to them, that is gold. That is going to take care of them. It is going to get them out of their current situation. It can get them in a, a, a home with their boyfriend. It can get them in a lot of circumstances just opened up with $450 that they can do for themselves, that they can run away. What do you have that trumps that? So we brought the girls into a room. We sat them down on a couch. Have a group of us sitting in a circle with them and say, okay, here's what we know. We know where you were when the stuff was stolen. We know that the stuff was stolen right then. We already know that you turned in one of the iPods that just kind of fell out of your backpack. You know, praise Jesus. The Holy Spirit is like, here you go. Um, We already know that you stole one thing, so we're going to assume you have it. We know this. And here's what we have. We have a phone call to the police or to your foster mom, which turns into none of you going back to live with your families. It turns into 
you having to go to jail, it turns into another court case, it turns into misery for you, it turns into them strip searching you because we say that you have this money on you and you're, so you're not going to leave with the money. Here's what we have though, we don't want to do any of that. We want you to give us the money so that we can tell these girls that are in the dorm that they're okay because they are an emotional wreck. Not only did they lose their money, but they are high school girls. So they are, it is awful going on in there right now. We, we have to fix that. <laughs> we need the money back. And we need you to stay. Because you may not believe this, but we believe that everything that has happened to you devastatingly is not God's will for you, but it is man's choice that has wrecked you, victimized you, damaged you, and destroyed you. And we refuse to be part of that story. So we're not sending you home. But you've got to give us a little bit. We will keep you here and we will tell your foster mom that we had an amazing week. We worked through a lot of stuff and that you are a different person now going home. You're poor. <laughs> but we want you here. And in that moment, one of the two girls stood up, asked for our female leader to go out to the bathroom with her, walked out to the bathroom. In a minute, an adult leader called back. She's like, Chris, I need you to come out here. I walk out. She hands me a roll of cash. And he's like, here, and she needs to tell you about her friend. And I'm like, why are you throwing your friend under the bus? Because you know she's going to be mad. It's one thing for you to give up your cash. You are giving up her cash right now, too. And this, is, this could get ugly. Like, we could end up a fight. She's like, I have to. Because she is in the middle of a court battle right now. And if you are offering grace and forgiveness, I'm taking it. And she can be mad at me, but I cannot let my friend go to jail again. And you're giving me that opportunity. So she's holding, and this is how much she has. So we bring her out. Sit her down. We're like, hey, we know that you're holding because your best friend just ratted you out. And she's like, so mad with a roll of cash sticking to her shirt. I'm like, I see the money in your shirt. You might as well just give it to me right now. She's like, okay, here. Like, you mad at me? No. What are you? I'm thankful. Why? I get to stay. Who are you mad at? Her. Why? She ratted me out. So then they go in, they're getting ready to confront each other, and it was the most beautiful moment. One girl walks in, fist clenched, ready. I mean, this is how it's going to go down. I'm like, it's a UFC fight right here at church camp. This is awesome. Um, No, I'm a pastor. This is not good. Um, And as she comes in, the other girl stands up and says, I know that you were mad at me, but I did this for us because we're all we have. And if I go back to that foster home and you go to jail because they make you go because you think you're walking out with this money, I couldn't do that. So I would rather have you mad at me than us not take this deal of grace. And I'm like, what? Man, the church needs to hear this. That's good news. Punch her. And she wasn't ready to completely forgive. And she walked out and we had to move her into a different bed so that something didn't happen. Because she still wasn't clean, right? She went to sleep with some good news in the back of her head. The other girl looked and she said, can I meet the other girls that I stole from? And I'm like, oh, these are high school girls. Do you sure you want to do that? Because I cannot guarantee that you will be met with love and forgiveness. It could be nasty. You sure? She's like, yeah. Can I meet with them tomorrow morning? I'm like, yeah. We've already sent them to bed. You're going to be sleeping in here tomorrow morning. We'll have them come in for breakfast. So they're starting to walk in for breakfast before the girl walks in, and I hand them an envelope with all their cash. They all get made completely whole. 
So they sit down, completely whole financially. And this girl walks in and says, last night was the best night of my life. And I'm like, what is best night of your life? How so? I was wrecked because I've never stolen from anybody and had to sleep in the same dorm as them before. And hearing you guys cry and agonize over how you were going to give that money to orphans in Mexico and how that was your money to be able to do the offering or all of this stuff. And I had it stolen. I never felt guilt. And so when they told me that I could stay and all I had to do was give the money back, all I wanted to do was give the money back because I want to have what you guys have. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And all nine of those girls wrapped her up in a big hug and started praying. But they didn't pray that normal high school, I pray that God, you would remove this sin judgment, like, you know, praying their judgment through the name of Jesus, because that happens sometimes. They just started saying, God, I just pray that she knows the same forgiveness that I felt when I messed up. I praise you for giving her the same grace you gave me when I lied. And they owned it. It's time for us to own it. I don't know if you walked in here today with 200 commandments on behalf of God that you're trying to live up to. I got good news for you. He was hanging on a cross and he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And he meant the crowd right in front of him. And he meant you. And he meant me. You get access to the Holy of Holies in spite of your cleanliness or uncleanliness. That's the good news of the kingdom of God. Let's make that great. Religion will follow. And the world will change because they will see what we carry into every work circumstance, school circumstance, love relationship, business proposition, and cultural issue we ever run into. We'll ask the question first, how do I make this news good? Before we tell them how bad they are. Because these two girls, everybody had always been telling them how bad they were. They were waiting on a God to tell them how good he was. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that in this very room, if there's some of us that are living unforgiven lives because we're trying to be a part of a great religion, that right now we would embrace your good news. Holy Spirit, write the words on our heart that you want us to, to speak to you. If you want us to tell you that we believe that you are God and Savior, then we will say you are God and Savior. If you want to say, forgive me for my sins, then we will say, forgive us for our sins. I pray that in this moment, some of us would confess you as good news and that the best thing that happens today is that we lose our great religion and we invite good news into our lives so that our belief system can respond to it. 
And Jesus, I pray this week as we interact with our co-workers, with our family, our friends, our teammates, our loved ones, complete strangers, that you would write it on our heart to figure out in the way that you wrote it on Hezekiah's heart to figure out how to pardon all who seek your name in spite of their uncleanliness. We beg that to happen this week, Jesus. You are so great, and your news is so good. It's through you that we pray. Amen. Hope you have a fantastic week.